It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Hello, it's Manveen. We're away for the bank holiday, but in the meantime, we thought we'd introduce you to another fascinating podcast from the Times Stable. Each week, the Sunday Times West Coast correspondent Danny Fortson presents Danny in the Valley, conversations with people trying to change the world through technology and making a lot of money doing it. This week, how AI could completely change medicine. We hope you'll enjoy it, and I'll see you again tomorrow, as usual. Hello and welcome to Danny in the Valley. We are back for another week. How is everyone doing? I can tell you, I'm doing fabulously. All of a sudden, it's as if summer has arrived here in Northern California. We're outside, we're barbecuing, I'm coaching Little League, the kids are swimming. It's a wonderful thing after like six months of basically nonstop rain. But you don't care about that. You care about what's happening in Techland. And of course, the story remains and is and probably will be for the foreseeable future, AI. But we want to take a different tack this week. So, only the most original OGs of Danny in the Valley. We'll recall that over five years ago, I had on the program a guy called Vijay Pandey, who runs the bio fund at Andreessen Horowitz. They just raised their most recent fund, which is $1.5 billion. And what Vijay is doing there is he's investing really at the crossroads, the intersection of computer science and biology. Uh, And Pandey was, in a former life, a professor of both computer science and structural biology at Stanford. Anyhow, you can probably guess why I wanted to have him on, because one of the areas that we have not covered in this kind of AI boomlet is how it could change medicine, both with the invention of new treatments perhaps new diagnostics tools. And of course, there's a whole potential automation piece. We're just getting better at automating these really antiquated and super costly and painful kind of the the business of administering healthcare, which is a big reason, um, one of the many reasons it is so expensive. At least in the US, healthcare now accounts for about a fifth of the entire economy in terms of spending, which is just... Insane, not least because our outcomes aren't really getting better. Life expectancy has gone into reverse. We're bigger and fatter than ever before. So perhaps could AI, in the same way that it promises to entirely upend other industries, education, as we uh, discussed uh, last week, could it revolutionize medicine in ways expected or unexpected? That is why I wanted to have on 
BJ and we get into all of that. You will like this one. Trust me. So I will now hand you over to my conversation with BJ Ponday of Andreessen Horowitz's Bio Fund. Enjoy. As we were saying uh, before we started recording, it's been at the very least five years. So you're one of the kind of Danny in the Valley OGs uh, back when I was just starting out with this podcasting thing and didn't know what I was doing. So it's good to see you again. Good to see you. That was a fun chat. So I'm looking forward to this one. Um, Well, so as you were mentioning, a lot of the things that we talked about way back when, which feels like a billion years ago, have come true. And one of them that was on my mind, because one of the things that stuck with me from that chat was this idea of blood biopsies, the, the, the ability to potentially detect stage zero cancer using machine learning, kind of pulling the needle out of the haystack and, you know, in the blood to say, okay, very early stage cancer, we can nip it in the bud. And isn't this a wonderful thing? How close is that to happening? Is it one of those things that was like, oh, this is just going to be way harder than we thought? No, well, so in in the case of the investment I made in in Freenome, uh, they're in clinical trials. All the trials have been looking great there, and so fingers crossed, we'll have uh, positive results uh, relatively soon, and then they'll be in market. So that's very much uh, a reality. I think one of the challenges in healthcare is even if AI can handle the testing part and the the readout, still have to go through the clinical testing, yeah, and that 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 takes time and. Uh, I think that that makes sense. And actually, technically, you don't have to. They could have gone out in so-called CLIA lab. But I, I think to get it integrated into the system, I think clinicians really favor having that type of rigor. So yeah. that's why we decided to do it. But the upside is that after that proof point, then I think its acceptance uh, should be very strong. And, and, and I'm looking forward to taking it myself. I thought about you because, you know, I've been, as along with every other kind of tech journalist, all I do is write about AI these days. Yep. That's yep. Um, It's just kind of overtaken my life. And I was really curious about what this looks like in medicine. And it feels like there's this whole wave of enthusiasm around generative AI. You know, you put in a question, and it gives you the answer. And I'm just wondering, I'm sure that matters in ways that I don't appreciate at the moment. But does that matter in terms of, you know, when we're talking about tools, diagnostic tools, drug discovery, et cetera? Or is it more important, like the advances we've made in machine learning, kind of more autonomous systems that are just getting better at, you know, drawing signal from noise? It would be helpful to just understand what is happening when we think about AI, uh, specifically with kind of medicine, diagnostics, drug discovery, et cetera. Clearly, AI is a huge area. And I think one of the biggest differences now than maybe even six months ago is that generative AI, I think, has shown kind of the world that AI can do kind of amazing things in a way that people, you know, you'd hear other people talk about it and it's very abstract. It's very different to play with it. Imagine a world where all the websites existed, but there was no web browser, you know, and like, and except maybe just a few people, scientists had web browsers or could read the web. Uh, and people talk about the web and like, well, okay, maybe that's going to do something. And finally, someone makes a web browser that everyone can use and we can all see this stuff. And like, wow, that's a real amazing moment. And that's something we saw like, uh, you know, 20 years ago. I think that's what ChatGPT was in some ways. It was that moment where people who weren't playing with AI with their own hands got to get in there and finally got what we all were excited about. 
But that's not to say that like there isn't a lot of other things going on. And you could imagine like, you know, large language models are one area. And that's interesting because you can apply that to healthcare. We're seeing that where it's even potentially going to apply, uh, we give some healthcare services, like help people with maybe initial triage, maybe eventually even be a, a huge supplement to what doctors do to some of the simple things, maybe in time, some of the more advanced things. I think though, really where it gets more exciting is the whole sort of enormity of what AI is. So it could be large models for drug design, could be large models for diagnostic design, just AI will affect all of it. And most importantly, I think it will affect how we do all of it. So like how you develop the therapeutic, it will be based on AI understanding human biology. So it's a much greater chance to do well in the clinical trials. You'll get to the drug much faster. Um, and then you'll design the clinical trials such that it's cheaper and faster, and then it uh, gets out to patients faster, such that what used to take 10 years and a lot of dollars, I think it's possible in some cases to compact that a great deal. And actually, in a few cases, we're seeing even radical cases where companies for certain types of therapeutics can go from nothing to human, getting into humans in a year, and then from humans to market maybe in another year, let's say in case of vaccines. And so we're going to see, I think, a pretty radical change just in how we conceptualize what therapeutics are. So on that, for example, are there examples you can give of what is happening now? That Because I, I think, again, people are kind of, they're wowed by AI and the possibilities. And as you say, they've been playing with it and seeing how powerful it is and also some of the limitations with hallucination and things like this. But are there an example or two you can give of how kind of these new tools, whether it's generative or otherwise, are being used in the real world to do stuff that, as you say, even you know six months ago or certainly five years ago, you wouldn't have thought possible? Yeah, I think a great example here is a company called Inceptive. Actually, the co-founder CEO is Jakob Uskreit, who was the guy who invented the transformer technology when he was at Google Brain. And so it's interesting that, you know, he can in principle do anything. He's one of the top AI engineers in the world. And he came to life sciences and healthcare, I think, in part because he wanted to, I think, for the mission and in part because it's just a huge potential for which you can have impact on the world. And he's using that transformer technology, not for the English language, but for RNA and RNA sequences. Transformer is the T in GPT. Exactly. Yeah, yeah. And the key thing about transformer and technology is that it also has a general purpose nature to it. You could shove English into it. You could shove any language like French or German or Spanish or whatever. But you can shove computer code like Python or something. But clearly you can shove also protein sequences, DNA sequences, RNA sequences. And, and a lot of the same magical properties we see in the English language, uh, we see sort of similar like gains on, on, on these other languages. But one of the things that uh, when I was talking to him, I was really challenging him on is like to think about changes in the go-to-market as well. Mm. And so by doing mRNA vaccines, I, the hope is that you'll do a couple things. One is you'll get to market a lot faster. Like remember how fast these COVID vaccines came out? And now imagine they're being designed with this type of generative AI technology that understands the language of RNA. So you can get them out really fast. That hopefully will have greater efficacy. But also, it's a, just a different paradigm. Like, uh, you know, we don't talk about uh, getting polio, but we talk about all our, you know, our friends or loved ones that had cancer. Yeah. People used to get polio, 
And then we had a polio vaccine and then no more polio other than cases where people haven't gotten the vaccine. And it sounds like science fiction, but it's, I don't think we're that far off from a cancer, uh, maybe a vaccine for specific cancers and eventually multiple cancers to all cancers, a uh, vaccine for HIV. And for those who don't understand, and I'll put myself in this bucket, what is it about turning this transformer technology, this kind of generative technology toward mRNA or RNA that will potentially allow that to be the case for allow that kind of science fiction potential to be realized? I think it allows you to come up with vaccines that have the properties that we need much faster. So typically, you would do this experimentally by screening. Um, I'm trying to think right. The screening is you don't know where the needle is in the haystack. So I'm going to just take the whole haystack and look at one by one. Just one needle at a time. (laughs) One needle at a time. And where do you get the needles? Uh, Well, yeah, you have some guesses for what the right sequences are. And some people have sped up how fast you can go through the haystack as one thing with automation. And that's actually important because even in AI, you want to learn new things. But I think the key difference here is that just on the computational side, you can get to the right answer or maybe five of the the top candidates very quickly. And then you can screen, then the experimental part, which is important, can be done much more quickly. And the ones you get to have properties that are useful, not just immediately, but you can also design them for, will they have long shelf life? Will they not have immunogenicity with people? Will they, all these different things we can build in from the beginning rather than deal with these mistakes afterwards. So it's, about kind of narrowing down the possibilities, but also basically creating the possibilities from whole scratch, you know, from, from whole cloth, rather. Yeah, I mean, it's getting right to the answer, you know, that, that we've been looking for, if you can train it correctly. And that's always the tricky part. Right, right. And that's what they're doing at Inceptive, or at least trying to do. Yeah. And so I think partially what I find exciting about that, too, is this paradigm of rethinking the go-to-market part of medicine. Like, let's try to get to market quickly. Yeah. But also... Rethinking, like, what is healthcare? You know, I think we think of healthcare as, oh, I'm sick, give me, I need a pill or a surgery. I think we'd all rather healthcare is like why we don't get polio. Like, yeah. I'd rather, I don't want to get polio than have a pill that cures my polio. I, I'd rather just never have to worry about it ever again. And I think it sounds crazy to think that, you know, 30 years from now, maybe even five years from now, there'll be certain cancers that we, we just, you don't get anymore. And that the way we think about polio, that the next generation will, will not even worry about cancer is, is the dream that we're trying to hunt down. And you think that's not like pie in the sky? I don't think so. And I think there are other people working on vaccines in this area, too, to be clear. And I think that's both represents the fact that uh, many people see this vision and appreciate it. And now the question is, who can do it best? I was interested before we got on the call, I was reading that you just posted today this piece online about... I think it's the founders of Instacart. Who else? Yeah. Help me out. Instacart, I think, uh, Spotify and Coinbase. Yeah. Founders of these companies, you know, they've made a ton of money, had a lot of success, and now they're starting new companies in healthcare. And you wrote this piece kind of like a kind of a rah-rah type piece of trying to get other folks like them into the healthcare game. And I'm just wondering, you kind of address it in the piece of like healthcare is a huge market. Yep. but it's kind of scary and most people don't want to mess with it. Why do you think now is a better time for especially techies, non-medical people to be like, you know, I, you should have a go? Yeah, a couple of things. Uh, and I think this is what people are discovering on their own. One is that as uh, tech people got into other areas, 
Airbnb and Instacart and Lyft are all good examples. You know, the regulatory aspect of those businesses didn't scare them off. And, and that you have to learn and learn how to work with regulators, learn what the regulations are. It used to be, I think, just the fact that healthcare had any regulatory aspect at all scared off a lot of people from tech. But I think people have learned how to work with that and understood that that's not intrinsically a problem. And then the second thing that scared people off is uh, there's a lot of alphabet soup in healthcare, just a lot of acronyms. Yeah. And also it's this combination of this huge sort of clinical MD organization, all this life science stuff, all this government stuff. And it makes sense because it's like a quarter of GDP almost now. So it's really a, a combination of multiple industries that are working with each other. So it seems complicated, but it's in part it's complicated just because of that scale. And so when people start wrapping their heads around it, they've dealt with other complicated things. A lot of the reasons for avoiding it are really strong reasons. And whereas the reasons for getting in are very strong, such a huge market and in a market that's been pretty impenetrable to tech so far. Yeah. But I think and this is the big new thing is that we're seeing actually now is, I think, really a clamoring for tech. And like how many of them on the payer provider side have been talking to us about AI? It's just astounding. I think they get it. And so I think there's been a sort of a cultural shift in the, in the industry specifically. That's interesting. Yeah, because it's it's such a big industry, but I don't know anybody. I mean, obviously you have some life-saving treatment. It's wonderful, but like the whole experience kind of sucks. Yeah. You yeah. know, especially in the States when you talk about payment, dealing with insurance companies, fighting for coverage, all that kind of stuff. It just feels like every step along the way, it's just this stodgy, designed to be painful type experience. Yes. And I don't think there's no systemic reasons why it has to be that way. But um, I think so much of it is old technology. It's like dot matrix printer, whiteboard, <laughs> US mail, fax machine. These are the, the primary technologies in many cases. And I think that's being replaced literally with AI in several cases. Uh, and not just really clinical parts, probably the back office parts might be some of the first places where uh, AI makes an impact. I think it's not really even a question of technology. It's a question of, are people ready to adopt this in that space? And I think we've come to the point where just if we don't make changes in healthcare, it will not be 25, but be 35, 50, 75. Like eventually all we will be doing is healthcare uh, as a nation. And that just, that really won't happen. And so we're getting pretty close to the limit where I think people realize that technology is going to be a critical part of the future. Well, just stepping back also, I was reading a piece the other day about U.S. life expectancy. And when you talk about this being such a massive market that, you know, trillions of dollars, and then you look at this very sad looking graph that goes up and up and up and up, and then starting basically with the pandemic, it's going back down. Yeah. And it's like, it's the richest, we're the richest nation in, in the history of ever. And, you know, our life expectancy, our longevity, our health is going in the wrong direction. Yes. And I don't know if that is a driver in what you're seeing when people are kind of like, actually, let's see if we can do this a better way. Because part of it is about treatments, but it's really about provisioning of a health care, making it preventative rather than reactive. It's about yes. kind of getting people care. All of this stuff that feels more basic than we just need to create a new wonder drug. Yeah, I think um, so. There's a lot of complexity to what is bringing down life expectancy. Some of it also is just access that healthcare is hard exactly. to get and, and yeah. expensive, and a huge cause of consumer debt, 
it can be financially ruinous. I think if you start with access, that's one of the things I think that makes AI particularly interesting because there is a huge divide between uh, what you get between rich and poor in healthcare. Mm. And I think uh, one of the interesting things about technology broadly is that technology typically evens out a lot. Like um, in days before electricity, if you wanted music in your house, you had to pay for musicians to come to your house. You know, how often does that happen? Before electricity, if you wanted music in your house, you'd pay for musicians to come to your house. If you wanted your clothes washed or, or, or food cooked, you know, you'd have people to do that. But that's like like things of kings and, and, and princes and so on. Now, if you want music in a house, you, you get Spotify or something like that. And it's not like your Spotify is worse than like a billionaire Spotify. It's like it's all just Spotify. It's just yeah. digital music as good as it's going to be. You know, and so technology tends to equalize a lot out. And one of the greatest inequities right now is healthcare. That if you have uh, money, you can get much better healthcare. And if you don't, you may not have any healthcare or, or very poor access. And this is actually in all areas. And in some cases, in mental health, there are some zip codes that have, let's say, one mental health provider or sometimes zero. And so one of the things that we expect to see with AI in healthcare is that eventually, and I think we're getting close to this, that AI for certain areas will be as good as some of the best doctors. And so it's not like you're getting an inferior product. You're actually getting a superior product, much like, you know, uh, digital music is superior than like some random guy coming to play music for you. <laughs> you know, you get to have the stones whenever you want yeah. or Billie Eilish or whatever. And so I think you could have the best anytime, anywhere at the lowest cost. That's what the technology can bring. And I think that's one of the things I think that will change this curve. I think access and compliance will go a huge way. When you talk about getting something that is as good or better than human doctors, is there an example you can give? Yeah, I, I think, you know, this is still very early. And to be clear, this is not something where I'm saying that there won't be a ro role for doctors as much as in cases where people don't have access to doctors at all, if it's no doctor or, or, or this, I mean, it's obvious that this would be superior. But um, the classic example from years ago was in radiology. I've been hearing about the end of radiology for like a decade. Yeah. Well, and let's talk about like what the technology can do <laughs> and then why it hasn't changed, right? Yeah. So the technology is there. Like technology in terms of like identifying, uh, diagnosing images at a superhuman level. And it basically can be better than a human being. So just to be clear, that exists today and that is in the market today and approved by the FDA? Yeah, so, so it exists. The challenge is like getting, I think, into doctors' workflows and like who's going to pay for this and will doctors sort of, will it be viewed as something that's helping them? And I think getting to the workflow is a key part. When I think about other AI and medicine companies, like another one of ours that we know well is Bayesian Health. Bayesian really, I think, uh, thinks a lot about doctors first mm. and not like technology first, even though uh, the CEO founder is like an OG in AI and has, has been doing AI for her whole career. Um, I think if you think doctors first and ask what do doctors need and want and then provide the solutions to that, I, I think that's the best bet to actually um, get used and work in, within the system. If this technology exists and it can look at an image or assess an x-ray and do it better than a human, yeah. presumably for cheaper than a human, yeah. faster than a human. What is the holdup? 
Because again, this has been like this canonical example, which is why when I read your piece about, you know, guys, now is the time, this is the this massive industry waiting to be disrupted, where I was like, I've been hearing about the canonical example of, you know, radiologist days are numbered because this technology can do it better and it doesn't feel like much has changed. Yeah, I think it does. It's the human part of it and working within the system and really sort of thinking about doctors first in terms of not technology first. And I think that is part of the mistake. And I think the companies who um, I think are thinking about AI these days, I think they are really thinking they're going to doctors workflows first. And, and if you can get in the workflow, people will use it. Maybe like an example would be, and maybe this is not a great example, but a bad, not a great analogy is like, remember like Clippy, the Microsoft? I remember logo? Clippy, yes. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Who yeah. doesn't? I'm sure you fondly remember Clippy, right? <laughs> uh, um, like it was a helper, but like it got in the way. It was not in your workflow. And maybe it could do useful things, but none of us really ever got to the point where we found out because we just wanted to get rid of Clippy. Correct. And I think that's an example of when it's not in your workflow or it's, or it's getting in your way, you're not going to want to mess with it. And so we have to think about working in the workflow. And one of the things I think we're realizing is, and this is something that other enterprise software areas have realized, is that you want to almost create a consumer-like experience in that enterprise software. You know, like Facebook or Google are just great apps to use, and they're optimized for us rather than optimized for who's paying for the app or whatever. And I think we'll start to see that when you optimize it for the doctor, get in their workflow, not get it in their way, but make it really useful for them. I think that's when we'll start to unlock things. And I think that's the big difference for what's being built today. Small details are big surfaces. Tight corners are odd shapes. Flat, rounded, textured, or tall. Whatever your next project, there's a spray paint pattern that's just right. Because Rust-Oleum's new Custom Spray 5-in-1 gives you control with five different spray patterns. So you can tackle nooks, crannies, edges, and curves without worrying about drips, runs, uneven coverage, or anything else. Custom Spray 5-in-1. Only from Rust-Oleum. Selling a little or a lot? Shopify helps you do your thing however you cha-ching. Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business. From the launch your online shop stage to the first real-life store stage. All the way to the did we just hit a million orders stage. Shopify is there to help you grow. Shopify helps you turn browsers into buyers with the internet's best converting checkout. 36% better on average compared to other leading commerce platforms. Because businesses that grow, grow with Shopify. Get a $1 per month trial period at shopify.com slash work. Shopify.com slash work. Well, it's interesting on that consumerization point. Because again, the, you know, the provisioning of healthcare generally is pretty clunky and feels, as you say, it's kind of fax machines and dot matrix printers. Oh, yeah. yeah. And then you have the big tech companies like... Apple, you know, the Apple Watch, it's like every new version has a little extra gizmo that measures something. And I have no idea whether how good that, you know, what level of fidelity we should have or faith we should have in what they're measuring. But it does feel like, you know, there's more and more stuff where we can monitor our health. And then you have things like there will be LLMs trained specifically, you know, it's just like I imagine Web WebMD 2.0 or 5.0 or whatever, where it's just like, this is as good as a doctor in terms of answering questions. 
it does feel like there may be an opportunity to come at it from this other angle of just like, we're just going to make a very useful health product and kind of invade the market that way. You mean like from uh, Apple doing it with the Apple Watch? Yeah. Yeah. Or like a new version of WebMD that we're going to create the best doctor chatbot that anybody can use. And so it's like, you know, Dr. Google, but actually it's it works and it's better. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, and those are cropping up like today everywhere. There's one we just cropped up today. I think the challenge will be, and I think you alluded to this earlier in our chat, that uh, one thing we do have to be careful about is that in other areas of generative AI, small mistakes are not a big deal or even cute. You know, like you draw that someone's hand and it has four fingers. You know, that's not a big deal. It looks a little creepy, but it's not a big deal. But, you know, you do a surgery and the person ends up with four fingers as a, as a that could be a big deal, <laughs> you know? <laughs> yeah. Uh, and, and there are a lot of things in life science and healthcare where the difference between the way uh, small things lead to big differences uh, in the end. And, and so there's going to be a lot of work that has to be done to clean that up. None of it actually is, I think, conceptually a roadblock. But there is just a lot of work that has to be done to, to, to get to the point where we can feel much more comfortable with things. And probably shorter term, it will be people in the loop. And so I use Clippy as an example for the negative. But the positive is, you know, like grammar checkers or things like that, you know, like having the computer help just keeping an eye on all the things you're doing and just ready to help you out. And it's not doing it for you as much as it's accelerating you. That's a trivial, obvious first place to start. I think there will be certain cases where there'll be just natural applications. Like I think in mental health, I think uh, therapy will be an, uh, an obvious one and there are people playing in that. And especially since people like texting and async therapy, actually way more than you ever might think. And even not just- Really? Yeah. And not just like teens and 20-somethings, it's like of all ages, because- it's there all the time. So you wake up yeah. at 2 a.m. and you can't sleep and you're upset about something. Like, it's there. It knows you. It's not random. It's it, it's sort of the same thing all the way through. But it not being human is sometimes reassuring because I think uh, sometimes in therapy, especially when you start out, there's a stranger who you're talking to and you're giving all – you're bleeding your you heart out. You have to get comfortable, and, yeah. Yeah, and, and it's a little socially awkward. Yeah. Whereas in this case – there's a nice sort of middle ground of it feels human enough, but you're not worried about it judging you. So that could work and help a lot of people in a huge mental health crisis. But of course, you see any like allusion to suicide or anything more serious, and then you escalate to human being relatively quickly uh, and just you know you, you handle that. So I, I think there will be certain applications that are not clinically like uh, as challenging. We're not going to do the most challenging clinical things first. But I think areas where there'll be huge mass need, mass impact. And I think as we just get more and more comfortable, you'll see more and more use. Yeah, um, to that point, we had on a couple months ago, Noam Shazir, who's the founder of this company, Character AI. Yeah. And he just they just put this thing out there and it's like, let's just see how people use it. And he was like, the one of the key use cases was people using it as a therapist. Yeah. And, you know, sending in emails being like, this thing saved my life because it f- listens to me. It feels, it seems like it cares about me, which is kind of like, that's a whole other discussion. Yes. But it yes. is interesting that that was like, they were completely not prescriptive about what you should do with this thing. And that was one of the use cases that emerged. Yeah. And, and the fact that people are doing essentially this DIY in a sense with character, <laughs> you know, like I, I think that to do it 
really well could be very impactful. Yeah. And so you launched this, your fund before like the world woke up to AI and what this stuff can do. But what are you most excited about now when you think about kind of the the universe of possibilities and where you can make like, whether it's the biggest impact, the biggest changes, the things that might be coming where people will be like, oh my God, I can't believe this is real. I think in healthcare, one of the areas that I think is exciting is that healthcare cost and, and value and quality is really dependent on high quality people. Mm-hmm. And, you know, that just is getting more and more expensive. The ability for AI to sort of transform what used to be like services into compute finally gets uh, healthcare on the Moore's Law curve because compute is getting exponentially less expensive and healthcare is exponentially more expensive. And something like this could really radically transform things and bring down the cost, improve the quality of care, finally sort of get all the parts that we, we complain about healthcare. Uh, I think finally we will start to see that transition. It had to get to the point, though, where it has to get good enough that people feel comfortable doing this and where people are excited about it. And I think that's the transition we've seen just over the last few years. And this is going to uh, apply to just, I think, healthcare very broadly. And, you know, in that sense, healthcare's national crisis of cost, I think we'll be able to address and life expectancy. In principle, walking backwards, we should have the best healthcare in the world. Yeah. Our return on investment right now is terrible. Yeah. And so I think the potential here for this innovation is to sort of restore that and even just to transform how we think about healthcare. On the life science side, I think, you know, we're going to hopefully get to a point where we have a mentality where we're just not getting sick. And that might be certain types of vaccines. It might be actually certain types of diagnostic devices that we take to help us with metabolic disease. So we uh, stay away from type 2 diabetes and stay away from weight gain and all these things. That in the end, I think just using life sciences combined with healthcare to just keep to be sort of true healthy uh, care, not sick care. I think that would be, I think, 20 years from now, just it will seem odd that people will were sick from all these things. I've often referred to like type 2 diabetes prevention as the new sanitation. You know, mm. like there's that joke that, you know, uh, that plumbers have saved more lives than doctors because of, of sanitation. I think no one should be dying of these things. But this is behavior change in addition to some technology. There's just a lot of things, reasons why it isn't that way. And I think having an AI assistant with you for all that stuff also will be, I think, pretty transformative for just how you think about healthcare. You know, when we talk, it's even hard to articulate the, I'm trying to sort of express the big, big picture Mm. of like just how everything will change uh, due to this. But, you know, if you go piece by piece, I think, you know, your day in your life 10 years from now, AI will be intertwined in it the way the internet is intertwined now. And we don't think about it at all. Yeah. And that I think that up-leveling of our life from the internet, I think will be analogous up-leveling uh, from AI. And when you talk about this idea of, of translating services into compute, is there an easy example to kind of illustrate what you're talking about? Yeah, I think so. You know, like the mental health therapist example we're mm-hmm. talking about there is one. I think in time, you'd want to see a general practitioner about something. I could imagine, you know, like your kid is sick. Like the worst thing about your kid being sick is having to take them in to see the doctor where all the other sick kids are. Yep. And then like now you're really sick. 
uh, and so on. To be able to triage that and know whether you really need to go to the doctor or not, and maybe that also involves taking some tests at home, like some pictures, or maybe even like you put on the pressure cuff and you do some basic things, uh, and that feeds into the system. And then it can probably quickly tell you whether you should go or whether it's not a big deal. I think it'll handle the simple things first. In time, though, there'll be crazy things. There's already robotic surgery that's done in many cases because a, a robots can be more precise and can you can get imaging done and then you lock the person down and uh, it, the robot knows the, the road that it has to go on. The areas that AI will penetrate will be, I think, just in time, everything, because in the end, medicine is about dealing with data and interpreting and coming up with actions. And that's really what, in the end, AI really is just the way of handling data. Right. And on that drug discovery point, I think it's interesting. I've come across a few companies who are using AI to basically create new drugs or to kind of new proteins, whatever it may be. Do you think that is interesting or a potential kind of game changer or is it kind of fool's gold? Yeah, no, it's an area dear to my heart since this was a lot of the research I did at Stanford, as you know, and it's something where in the space people have been working towards this for, for decades. Yeah. And um, I would say that there's three parts of this. Like one is AI for biology. Can you understand disease biology well enough to know like how could a drug possibly cure the disease? Uh, like AI for chemistry, like you know what protein to hit now. Um, can you target it, especially hard to target proteins? And then AI for medicine, which is, okay, we think we've got this, but now we have to run a clinical trial. And so uh, companies I'm involved with sort of go after these. Uh, the first one, like in Citro, is very much AI for biology. This is Daphne Kohler's company. Daphne is a OG in AI herself and uh, written some of the key works you know, that people have been building off of. And the key thing is that most people don't realize is that we design drugs not so much off of human biology as much as what we can from cell lines and proteins and animal models. And then we try it in humans and see what happens. And, you know, guess what? You know, people are very different than mice. Yeah. And that comes up pretty dramatically. Uh, <laughs> in, in, you know, I, I think I made this joke with you last time. It's a great time to be a rich mouse. But like uh, it's it's that's a real problem. And, and understanding disease, human disease is really hard. And what AI can do is it can build a virtual model of a person. And in time, it can even build a virtual model of me and you. Mm. Such that it can know even like how to address your version of the disease. So I think that's an area. And then in AI and chemistry, um, uh, there's a company called Genesis Therapeutics, which actually commercialized technology out of my lab. Evan Feinberg is a co-founder, CEO there. Evan did really breakthrough work at Stanford and, and now has taken that uh, many leaps forward to drug very undruggable targets. The, the last piece, though, I'm still looking for, at least in terms of my investing, this AI for clinical trials. Mm. Uh, and uh, there's some you know, early examples of that. It's an area where there's also such huge possibilities because if you speed up a blockbuster clinical trial by a month, that could be worth $100 million. You know, like one month out of three years could be $100 million. Yeah, yeah. And if you can prioritize trials, not even predict all of them, just know which ones to try first – that could be billions of dollars. It's just we spent so much money on that, that it's an area where there's huge, huge wins that could come from it. But it's perhaps the most complicated. Uh, and so I think that's the sort of holy grail on the drug design side. Swinging back to the provisioning side, it feels like what you're saying, there's a, 
you know, a lot of the problem with, you know, the 25% of, you know, GDP going to this industry is a lot of it is just kind of mucked up in old systems. And what AI can do is, is kind of not that sexy, but super useful of just automating stuff, of being able to kind of take unstructured data, understand what it is, put it in a form that's usable and kind of bring it all together in a way that is just dramatically cheaper, faster, better than what we have now. Is that fair? I think that's fair. I mean, I think often in life, the unsexy stuff is where the real rubber hits the road. Yeah. And so I think a fair bit of it will be things like that. One way to think about it is like there's a series of progressions for AI. One is where the fact it can do anything is kind of amazing, right? Yep. And like it can play chess at all is kind of amazing. Then there's what I would call the first level of superhuman, like collective superhuman. It kind of has the wisdom of all of us. And um, that no hu- single human being can be a theoretical physicist and a cancer doctor and like a poet or something like that. And this can do all of it. And superhuman in that sense. There's a level above which is superhuman in the sense of like an Einstein or a Mozart or something like that or Marie Curie. Like somebody who is just so extraordinary and just rethought how we sort of conceptualize something. AI is, I think, nowhere close to that right now. Yeah. It can duplicate reasonable people, experts in the field, but it's not like that idea that we don't have. Like in physics, the Einstein's unsolvable problem was quantum gravity. He never got to that. You can ask ChatGPT about quantum gravity. It doesn't. It can just tell you what other people have worked yeah. on, but it's not going to solve that. And so I think uh, in that range, we get excited about the sexy stuff being up up here, but like the basic stuff down here is probably also where the huge cost savings may be, at least in the beginning. Just stepping back from the AI side of things and talking about, for example, you know that that sad curve of our longevity going in the wrong yeah. direction. Do you? invest at all or think at all about kind of whether it's lifestyle, whether it's food, nutrition, the food system, all that stuff. You mean, you know, the reasons that we are fatter and unhealthier than ever before. Yeah, I think it's it's a whole combination of different things. And so it's hard to attribute to one. I think we do as a culture eat a ton and, and there's so many comorbidities of that. And type 2 diabetes here is obviously rampant. One of the most powerful forces of America is American culture. And you can see that distributing to other places where now other places are getting a greater, you know, uprise of type 2 diabetes. I know uh, from family and personal uh, issues in like in India, it's becoming much, much more, more common. Yeah. And so some of that is a sign of wealth, unfortunately, that, you know, like a thousand years ago, if we could just feed everyone, that would be viewed as amazing, you know? And now, unfortunately, it's that we, we have too many calories uh, and then too many of the wrong calories is part of the problem. And so actually, we, I think a lot about also health from a food perspective and just like the healthy food is pretty expensive. And, you know, just fruits and vegetables, tasty fruits yeah. and vegetables are, are a lot more expensive than like going to fast food. For sure. And just again, kind of going back to this kind of moment we're in, this kind of AI explosion. Another thing that I saw, I think it was around New Year, talking about like the next biggest company in the world is going to be a healthcare company. Yeah. You're feeling more convinced of that now, I would guess, than you were even a few months ago? Uh, Yeah, I, I think we have even more reasons for it. Part of my thinking goes a little bit like this too, which is that 
If you look at the arcs of where technology has impacted things, it's impacted tech, the internet, mobile has impacted many sectors. But healthcare is one that has been, I think, a bit slow. And for legitimate reasons, it's something where like lives are literally on the line. It's a very complicated area. There's a lot of reasons why it would be amongst the last, but it's amongst the last, amongst the biggest. And so if you could build a trillion dollar company you know, for Facebook or Google or for selling stuff on Amazon, you know, like the healthcare scale of things is so big that I think there's all the reasons to believe that this is the place to play. But on top of that, one of the things that we're seeing, and this is true of that tech founder piece you mentioned earlier, is that founders are coming over to healthcare because it's such a grand challenge. And like uh, the other grand challenges are less interesting. You know, the tech has done so much that like, are you going to do another Spotify? Are you yeah. going to do, you know, another Airbnb? It, tech has impacted those quite significantly. And so people are looking to open field for where they could have the biggest impact. And then one last thing is that uh, actually in healthcare, you get better people than you deserve. I've seen this my whole life, that people come for the mission and feel good about that. And even if you let yourself... If that's not how you're motivated, that's fine. I mean, if your cause is true and good, I think you'll get people who will come to for just the mission too. And, and so all of those things, I think, are really well aligned to be building this uh, biggest company in the world. AI, I think, just turbocharges that. And it was the expectation that it would be impactful. Uh, I think in the last year since we wrote that piece, more or less, uh, just a lot's happened. Such that, If nothing, it accelerates the argument. So today, you're given like, I don't know, Choose your number, $50 million, $100 million. You're starting yeah. a company. You're starting a healthcare company. You're going to make the biggest company in the world. What is it? What are you trying to do? I think one version of that, and probably my favorite version of that, is like the, the full-stack healthcare company, like the Apple for healthcare, where it is your insurance company, it is your doctor, it's the company that cares about you that has and that does such a good job for that complete package that you just stay within that ecosystem for everything. You mean like Kaiser? Yeah, but scalable and maybe uh, higher quality in some ways. So Kaiser is a fantastic company, but it's hard to scale and it's a brick and mortar company, you know? And so like in a sense, Hilton is to Airbnb as Kaiser is to this. How can you sort of create that, that scalable version? And the scaling is amongst the hardest things to do in healthcare. But actually, it's something that tech has done really well. Like Amazon is a great example of massive scaling to do things like Sears could never do. That's, I think, the hope there. And if you're handling both sides, hopefully you're very aligned because then the company just wants to keep the patients healthy. Handling both sides, meaning the service. Yeah, the patient and, and, and company are aligned. Right. right. Uh, too often, um, patient and company are not aligned. Yeah. You know, that the providers may want to do services and the payers want to not pay for services. Yeah, you certainly feel like as a patient, you are constantly stuck in the middle of the fight between insurance companies and providers. Yeah, you're more the product than the than the customer. For sure. And so I, I want us to be the customer. I want us to be uh, sort of in charge of this. And I want people, like if Apple made like a, a crappy product, people wouldn't buy it. But people love that stuff because it just works nicely and works well. And even people pay a premium for it. And there's a whole ecosystem they'll buy because it just will just work. I think something like that in healthcare, I think is what people are crying out for, where there's great 
consumer experience, like high NPS, just like a joy to use. It doesn't sound like anything you've seen in healthcare now, right? No. But like, I think uh, there are people that are looking to, to build uh, just that. Well, it is funny, even like uh, all the years I spent in the UK, the NHS is this kind of great treasure, but it's also kind of equally complained about and reviled by a lot of people because it's just, it's under-resourced, overworked. It just feels like nobody's really cracked this, which is just kind of crazy given that how fundamental it is. Put it this way to people listening who are like uh, my my colleagues uh, and, or uh, who think about this, like um, we all feel that the uh, capitalist approach actually will be the best approach even in healthcare. But now's the time for us to prove that, you know, and that right now it doesn't seem like it's working. No, and it hasn't been working for decades. Yeah, because we're paying more and we're getting less, right? So that's that doesn't sound like working. And I, I think there's a lot of systemic reasons why it's broken. And I think collectively, when we're talking about technology, working with payers and providers, working with doctors, thinking about patients first, and even thinking about regulators, like thinking, working with the FDA, working with CMS, um, working with government, there's a lot of moving parts in all of this. But I think right now we're at the point where people have wrapped their heads around how to try to get this done such that we can achieve that. And there, there are early signs. Two questions and I'll let you go. One is, going back to your guy from Google Brain, do you think this is at the beginning of a trend that we will see kind of basically engineers, technically savvy people, becoming, you know, kind of the next generation of drug discoverers. You know, the, the the idea that they don't have medical training isn't necessarily a blocker for them doing something, you know, truly kind of foundational or groundbreaking in what has been the province of people who've spent, you know, 15 years studying one thing. In the case of Inceptive, uh, the co-founder is Riju Das, who's an uh, expert in RNA biology, uh, Stanford chemistry faculty colleague of mine. Right. So maybe not the best example there. <laughs> so, 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 but, but no, but it, it's relevant for a key point, which is that either you have to have this people who are strong in both. And Riju is also extremely strong computationally is the key thing that Riju is strong in both. And Jakob is this AI guru. Uh, but I think what's going to happen and what we're seeing is that we're going to see more Rijus where the AI experts will also be deep, deep in the mm. biology. And that we didn't have that 10 years ago. We started to see it 10 years ago. We certainly didn't have it 20 years ago. And I think I talked about that with you when we, we last chatted. And now it's all over the place. Right. And the other thing is that we had them before, but, you know, they would go into Google or, or Twitter. Like uh, Alad Gill, you know, well-known entrepreneur from color and investor. You know, he is a, a PhD on the, the biology side, but he goes into tech. And so now they go, they stay in, in biology. And so not just coming from tech, but staying in biology. Lastly, is there a company or is there a kind of piece of the healthcare stack, so to speak, where it's like the kind of this massive opportunity to kind of remake some paper pushing aspect of it? Yeah. You know, is there like a deeply unsexy, but potentially huge company that you guys are working with or that like there's a big opportunity that like, it would help people understand kind of why we're spending so much money when you just think about just these systems. Well, the obvious example there is a company called Akasa, uh, founded by Malinka Waleade. Malinka actually used to be one of my partners here at A16Z. He and I basically did a lot to build up uh, BioFund from the beginning. It was just the two of us for the most part for a while. So Akasa deals with revenue cycle management. 
And revenue cycle management sounds kind of boring, right? It's and, yeah, I have no idea what I mean. I can guess what it is, but I don't know what it is. Yeah, it's basically billing, and but for hospitals, it can be six percent of top line, and you know six percent. Yeah, hospitals are not big margin businesses either, but there is a lot of top line. And so it's just billing is a lot. Well, you've seen this. You get all these. This is not a bill. Yes. What the F is like this. And then it, it and so and then there's all this back and forth between payers and providers to handle that with AI and just just simplify that. I think simplify payments and, and how all of our stress about it and all the complexities of that. I think that's something that is not clinically sexy, but will, I think, alone make a big difference in terms of cost and also hopefully in terms of stress. Yeah. And obviously that means more money to do the actual important stuff. Yeah, exactly. Awesome. Well, look, let's do this again. Not Let's not wait another five years till the next uh, pod. But uh, thank you again for your time. It's always fun to catch up. Yeah, absolutely. So much fun chatting. Thank you. And that is all the time we have. I want to thank VJ for taking the time for coming back on after so many years. I want to thank you all for listening, for the ratings, for the reviews, for telling your friends and neighbors about the show. I will be writing about, I don't know if I'll be writing about this. I know there's a whole bunch going on. So do check out the paper online at thetimes.co.uk or pick up an actual physical pile of, you know, dead tree paper. So I'll be there this weekend, and you can obviously always find me on Twitter at Danny Fortson, or you can email me danny.fortson at sunday-times.co.uk. That is it for me this week. Thank you, as ever, for listening. Stay safe, stay sane. Talk to you next week. Bye-bye. Even when we're on a budget, we still deserve nice things. Quince is a place to scoop up stunning high-end goods for 50 to 80% less than similar brands. They have buttery soft cashmere sweater starting at $50, luxurious Italian leather bags, and so much more. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe, ethical, and responsible manufacturing. Get the high-end goods you'll love without the high price tag with Quince. Go to quince.com style for free shipping and 365-day returns.